When I was a wee young lad of, I don't know, eight or nine years old, my parents got separated and then divorced. Which might be the first time I've ever said that. Usually I say divorced, and then if my mother hears me, she corrects me and says, well, we were separated first, as if that matters, because they never got back together. So I guess technically, sure, separated, then divorced. When this happened, uh, we were living in an apartment in Brockton, Massachusetts, and uh, it was a fairly tough neighborhood and a tough town. Um, even, even at our age, even in my class, and I was in um, second and third grade. Those were the two years I spent there. Yeah, even in second grade, it was like prison life <laughs> at that school and the neighborhood. It was just awful. But it was made even more awful by uh, a downstairs neighbor who molested me. So lived in this terrible neighborhood. Uh, Parents got separated. Downstairs neighbor molested me. And um, I remember uh, my best friend, Tiger, being out on his porch one day and this uh, neighbor from across his fence, this drunk man, came and slammed him up against the wall and started accusing him of uh, doing inappropriate things with his, um, I don't remember if it was just his daughter or his son and daughter. And as I was on my way to run into the house to get Tiger's mom, Tiger said, I didn't do it, he did it. Pointed to me and the guy threw Tiger off the porch and grabbed me and slammed me against the wall. And at that point, Tiger's mom came out and like, uh, punched the guy and shoved him off the porch and told him where he could go. So this was a tumultuous time. um, And one that my beady little child mind, I'm sure got all in all ways screwed up with in terms of authority figures and feeling protected and all of that. Um, And it certainly deranged me for a while. I mean, I remember, um, when my parents were out, well, my dad was, you know, out, <laughs> but my, uh, but my mom was at work and my, I don't know where my sister was. She must've been out playing with friends or something. Um, I don't know why I would have this alone time. Cause we had a babysitter who was a neighbor, but somehow I'm alone in the house. And, um, I sort of meticulously, so not to break anything, <laughs> but like, tore the place apart to make it look like someone had broken in, you know, tipped a bookcase over all this acting out stuff. And we had had a break in, I mean, fairly shortly after we moved in, uh, someone did break in and stole our TV and some other stuff. So I then faked another break in and, um, I think my parents suspected me, certainly the cops, I think when they came, they, they knew it had to be me, but uh, I didn't cop to it. Ha ha. Uh, and I also started playing with matches, which was uh, not smart. Uh, and I think that stopped. I would just, I would, uh, it stopped when I sort of burned a hole in the floor in the bathroom. Um, I think it was in, either in front of the toilet or in front of the mirror, but I would just, I, it must've been in front of the toilet. Cause I would light these matches and just watch them burn down until they were about to burn my fingertips. And then I would drop them in the, uh, in the toilet. 
Uh, and w- so one time I burned myself and I dropped it on the floor by accident and burned a hole and tried to cover it up with a rug. And, but, uh, eventually my parents found that out and that put an end to my pyro days. But th- this type of acting out is common to, uh, kids who are molested and, um, I th- you know, maybe even divorce. I'm sure that somehow plays a part in there. Um, and I also remember, um, this was that after the separation, I mean, really right after the separation, um, like I would just get a hall pass to go to the bathroom and I would, uh, in class and I, I would just hide under the stairs. There were these big staircases that had just sort of hollows underneath them. And I would just stand there. I don't know what, you know, I'm sure I didn't know why at the time, but I just wanted to be alone. You know, I was sad and depressed and all that. And eventually a teacher caught me and, uh, I, I got scolded or reprimanded, but not really in trouble because they understood that I was going through this, you know, this horrible time. So that was all the beginning of depression for me. I mean, all of that sort of snowballed into a depression and overeating um, and all of that, which uh, followed me for just about ever in my life. Um, it got really bad in high school. In high school, I would come home from school, turn on the record player. Yes, that's right. We still had a record player, uh, which eventually became a CD player, and listen to music that would um, make me feel, you know, something, something depressed or something, just something where that I could wallow in. And I would curl up into a ball on the couch and just go to sleep. You know, this was what I would do right after school and just feel like crap. Um, this was no longer in Brockton, Massachusetts. This is in Taunton, Massachusetts. And it, uh, outwardly, I mean, I was the life of the party. I was the joke guy and all of that. You know, probably this is the typical story of any comedian, which is that inside you're dying and outside you're making people laugh. And, um, both are you, you know, if you'd say like, well, are you being phony with people? No, that's me too. Uh, they're both legit. And being this sensitive and being this depressed probably uh, helped me to be a good listener and to uh, be the the person that my friends would come to with their problems. College, it was kind of more of the same. I mean, this isn't something, this isn't like this was all I was. It wasn't like I was, you know, wearing makeup, eyeliner, and well, at some point I wore eyeliner because... You kind of had to for no apparent reason, but I wasn't that guy who was just like wearing makeup and listening to Morrissey, you know, uh, or the cure or whatever. But, um, but I was that guy uh, who would be secretly horribly depressed. Although I guess not so secretly because at some point my parents forced me into therapy, um, for quite a bit of time. And, and I was prescribed Prozac at some point. And after a few weeks of Prozac, I was done with Prozac because it didn't do anything for me. And I felt like I really didn't need it. Like I wasn't, there wasn't something chemically wrong with me. 
It all made sense. And, you know, like even to me, I knew where my problems came from. It's not a freaking mystery, right? This isn't biochemistry. This is, this is life. So depressed in high school, depressed in college, um, but still a sociable character. And, um, you know, one of my favorites, of course, as with most kids of my generation, was Nirvana. And so when Kurt Cobain died, that was, uh, or when he killed himself, that was, that was, uh, that was hard to take. And it was so funny to watch these talking heads on the news talk about, uh, talking to your kids about this and your, your teens about Kurt Cobain's suicide, trying to help them make sense of it. And it's like, no, you know what? Mm, I think it makes sense. I think we got it. We, we completely understood. And it was my freshman year of college where uh, one of my best friends died of spinal meningitis. Um, and when I came home, I remember I just really wanted to go to my dad's and not have to deal with life for a while uh, during summer vacation. Uh, and when he came to pick me up, he was falling down drunk. I didn't even know that he... Uh, drank anymore. I knew he, you know, drank beers now and then. I thought he'd actually stopped that, but maybe I don't remember. But in any event, I never knew he was an alcoholic and this was him. This was this was the time he chose to hit bottom with his alcoholism was bringing me back to his place, which ended up with him passed out on the kitchen floor and me thinking he was dying and you know, getting an ambulance and doctors laughing and I hear them talking about, you know, if a normal drunk is point whatever, this guy's point quadrillion times that he should be dead. <laughs> doctors in their bedside manner. Am I right? Um, so that didn't help <laughs> with the depression. And then, of course, my mom and my dad were immediately like, oh, you, you've got to go to Al-Anon meetings. You kids, you've got to deal with this, with your the fact that you were in denial of this and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, we weren't in denial. We didn't know. There were no warning signs. He hit it very well. And uh, frankly, I, for one, am done taking therapy advice from completely screwed up people. Uh, it ain't working. So I didn't. I never went to an Al-Anon meeting. I never felt the need to to do that. Um, so all of this was pretty depressing, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then after college, um, well, actually, I had to transfer to another school because the Mooney cult, the Sun Young Moon cult, um, bought our school. And so our degrees were going to be completely worthless. Um, so most of us had to take a mass exodus out of there. And, um, I ended up at another school that university of Hartford that for me was terrible. My friend Travis, uh, was going to the heart school of music. So he loved it and he was telling me how great it was, but he meant the heart school of music. He didn't mean, um, the English writing program that, uh, attracted me because I thought I saw writing intensive. Ooh, I like to write. Um, that was uh that didn't end well either <laughs> so you know the depression goes on it rolls on and then of course it um 
it seeps into all other facets of life, the love, the non-existent love life. Um, and then you add to that, all of that, that the question of, and I'm sorry for those of you who are not uh, into the paranormal, or this is going to be a deal killer in hearing me talk about anything in the realm of sanity, but um, dealing with what I perceived to be alien abductions in my life. Um, certainly, that confusion was um, both terrifying and depressing, but also um, egging me on, calling, you know, sort of like a dangling carrot, because it's mystery after all. So um, some people just get terrified. Some people um, just get depressed. Uh, some people don't have any of that type of response. But many of us, uh, whatever our emotional response, we get pulled in by the mystery. What's going on? What is this? Uh, so it was a lot. When I think back, I guess that was kind of a lot. And I can go on and on with things that depressed me <laughs> in different ways, but you know them all because you've experienced them too. To some extent, we all have. So depression, what is depression then? Why are we depressed? With this show, for lack of a better term, we've been deconstructing our issues, right? You've been following me along as I deconstruct mine and then hopefully doing the same with your own life. But here, it's so obvious, you can see the buildup. You don't need to deconstruct and go back and go, hmm, why did this? Why was that? You can see the build for depression. And then you got to think like, okay, so what, what is this about? Like, why, why was the depression an obsession? Cause that's what I would call it. Uh, I mean, we hear about clinical depression all the time, which I think should be called obsessive depression because that's what it is. Clinical makes it sound like maybe there's something wrong with the chemistry of your brain that here you go, here's your drugs we can prescribe. But should we really be doing that when what's actually happening happening is we're hanging on to the past, uh, only the grip is so tight that we feel as though the past is gripping us? Yes, obviously these past events were horrible events. They puncture one's life. But do they have to forever? These ghosts, do they have to haunt us forever? Because they're not just ghosts haunting us, they are us. These are our thoughts, and we are thought. That is what the self is comprised of. The self is thought, and thought is time, psychological time. These are inseparable. And so when we're obsessing over the many ills of yesterday, or even the many good things of yesterday for people who live in their own nostalgia and go, hey, remember that time when, and that's the only time they feel good is being able to do that. Um, living in the past. But we say that, and we say, don't live in the past, live in the now, but we are the past. There, those people who say live in the now, and they, what they mean is uh, do something, to feel good, you've got to constantly be stimulating yourself um, to feel something. Well, that's not living in the now either. The now knows nothing of psychological time. These two things cannot coexist. One blocks out the other. Psychological time blocks out the now. Which is why we talk about silence. 
what is it that we're actually silencing when we're having deep, complete silence? Not the silence of blocking out a sound or of trying to, for instance, meditate, but of actually just being silenced. What is it that is silenced? Time. Yesterday. And that's what we're trying to get to on this show, right? The point where all of those ghosts evaporate. The ghosts that are us. So that we may instantaneously transform. Out of time, out of psychological time, into the now. So that thought and the self, they have a role, but they're not the dominant role. And of course this is scary, because that means the death of self, essentially. The death of self while the body is alive. And who wants that? You're all you know. And so you want to add on to the self. You want to do self-help. Maybe you want to take a drug to make it all better. To numb out. And isn't it funny how uh, we're now at a point where we're just on the cusp of uh, certain doctors, anyway, wanting to uh, do away with the pharmaceuticals because that stuff has just horrible side effects, right? these antidepressants and you get addicted to them and all of that. Um, And they're looking into hallucinogenics as a way to combat um, one's personal demons and addictions. So we're trading one drug for another in our quest to feel good, (laughs) to be right in this world, to be okay. But really when we understand all of our problems, when we understand the depression, not just the the roots of it in this sense, because as you're depressed, what you're obsessing over are those roots. You're obsessing over originally what happened, the divorce, the molestation, the, the girl who done me wrong or the guy who done me wrong, whatever it is. But then you're also depressed over yourself in that situation, right? Like, who are you in that? Situation? Why am I such a coward? Why am I why can't I just stand up? Why why do I feel this way? You get depressed about being depressed. If you're if 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 you're really depressed and your depression is worth its salt, you're going to feel depressed that you're depressed. And that's going to depress you even more. <laughs> right? Like some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, if you go to a psychologist for this, and I'm not a therapist, so I got to put out the disclaimer, probably I should do that with every episode, but I'm no therapist, so there's that. All I am is someone who's alive. But what I can tell you is that my experience is that psychologists, um, they'll bring you to the problem that you already know. Or if you are repressing that problem, then they will try to guide you to unearth that. Uh And then you talk about it, you deal with it. Or I guess now it's just fashionable to pop a pill and numb out and pretend that's okay. But neither of these are okay. Neither of these, I mean, obviously the drug is really not okay, uh, in my opinion. But the therapy doesn't go far enough because it doesn't actually dissolve the root of the problem. It just dissolves what's flowered from it. And if we can understand the root, what is the root of depression? Because it's not all of these things. It's not the molestation, the divorce, Kurt Cobain's death. It's not these things. 
Um, if it were, then I'd be the only depressed person on the planet. Right? So the fact is, depression is something that's in all of us. And how it flowers in one's life, well, sure, you can get rid of that, but then the next thing's going to pop up. Or the next expression of our, our partiality. And we just call that human nature. We just say, well, that's human nature. Um, you're always going to be struggling against sorrow in some form. But question that. Don't accept that. Don't accept what I'm saying either. Just question it. Is that true? Or is there a root of all roots that we are getting to? That we can see a little bit more clearly the more the more of these personal issues we do away with on this show, even, and in our lives. That's the goal here, right? It's to dissolve these. What's left? I mean, if the problems are you, and you are the problems, and the problems go away, then you're no longer a problem. Right? So what is that saying? You're no longer partial. You're no longer... Uh, a searcher looking to be fulfilled, you are then what? Who are you? When you're not depression, when you're not hate, when you're not anger, when you're not sorrow, what are you? You're love. And love is not the opposite of these things. Love just is. And love is one self-awareness in the absence of these issues that are currently you. Love has absolutely nothing to do with these things. I mean, the thing that we call love is um, still within the realm of thought. It's still a thing that we can choose toward or away from. But true love is choiceless because it's timeless it exists in the state that we do not exist in with our psychological time. So if we understand our problems, we understand ourselves. And if we understand them so deeply that their, their power, that we like to say their power over us, but their power as us, not just over us, because they dictate how we act in the world, how we behave toward ourselves, how we behave toward others. It's all us. There is no separation. And when you see that, I mean, clearly, this is just the fact, right? And when you see the fact, not just intellectually, but sit with it deeply. Be silent with it until one is silence. Then you're no longer you. You're no longer depressed. You're no longer covering up and hiding. There's simply clarity and joy in that. And then your uh, friends and family think you've lost your marbles because suddenly you're whole inside and that's um, there's a sense of happiness. You've moved from this stodgy brain person to a more open heart person and perhaps even beyond that. Put another way, you've moved from autonomy and loneliness to the immense aloneness which includes all others. 
And so you're in right relationship with yourself and with everyone around you. And you want to know the amazing thing about that state? That you're going to find probably grating to hear it because you think, well, whatever you think, is that you lose your taste for music if you have one. You lose your taste for dance, for art, for television, for movies, for ambition. It all goes the way of the dodo bird. Because when you're whole, you don't need anything to fulfill you. And you don't need these things that we cherish and worship even, these creative... I mean, you can still, if you're a writer, if you're a musician, I mean, you can still do them. But they they become an act of will, not an act of compulsion. And the 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 allure and the power of the arts simply isn't there anymore because there's nothing from thought that can speak to you. Right. On that deep level I'm talking about, there's nothing, you know, when we say like a song really speaks to me and we think that that is um, some amazing universal, uh, Ooh, ah, we put this music on a pedestal when in wholeness, (laughs) you realize well, that's all just thought too. That's all, toy box of the imagination and it's provoking an emotional response in you that you no longer can be provoked by because there's nothing missing for musical instruments to play. The meaning of the lyrics aren't deep. And I would think that to hear this um, would sound awful to someone who loves these things, worships movies, you know, worships video games or any of the things that we love to do. All of that doing and all of that feeling. We'd think that like, well, what do you just sit around bored? That sounds awful. But no, the reason that you can't sit around and get bored is because you live an unfulfilling life. I mean, that's what we all do, right? So we're talking about what happens when one is Fulfilling, not fulfilled, but fulfilling. When is that state of action? That's when meaning, insights, compassion, all of these come from the timeless now. All of these come from love, with love, and through you as love, not from thought, not from conditioning, not from the entity who has heard of such a thing and thought about it and created an artificial construct and called that the real. Not that entity. Because that's where we live in psychological time. That's where we live. And those people who are us, they may know how to smile, but that smile is a mask. And what that mask hides is the deepest secret of all. You. And when we say that from within psychological time, what we tend to mean is either what I was talking about, that I was completely depressed inside, but I would, you know, be the life of the party and make people laugh and all of that, hiding my my true feelings. Or else if we're quote-unquote spiritual people, we talk about, Our ego hiding our higher self. You know, if we're religious, we talk about a soul. 
But all of that is thought. All of that is supposition. All of that is running. Doing. And understanding ourselves and the whole rigmarole of us completely is our undoing. And when we're completely undone, when all the layers of the onion have been peeled away, we're left with nothing. And by any definition from within psychological time, that nothingness, well, that sounds completely frightening. It sounds like annihilation. We can't capture the true meaning of nothingness, of the timeless, of now, of love, of the immense creative force that we, in fact, are embedded in and are. We'd prefer to perfect our own sense of creative force. How do we become creative forces? How do we become better people? How do we become happy and self-sufficient and individuals? Well, if you're stuck in the patterns, as we are, of psychological time, the patterns of sorrow, all the flowers all the branches of sorrow, depression, anxiety, shame, guilt, go on down the list. If all of us on this planet are experiencing that in some form, then how individual are we? And if we're broken up inside, if we're fragmented and we're partial, then we're not indivisible. We're not individual. It's funny because the extroverted, depressed person who tends to be the life of the party, uh, they do so to feel special, right? Because it gives them that, that, that little tiny sense of fulfillment for the amount of time that they are doing that. And then they snap right back into their depression when they're alone. And the introverted, depressed person tends to um, not say that they're special, but in the fact that they have sheltered themselves and, and they keep relationship at arm's length, they are saying they're special. They're saying, my pain is unique to me, and I'm going to be alone with it. You can't understand me. They're not seeking approval. They're seeking disapproval. And both of these are the same movement. They're both people screaming to be individual, to be recognized. One says, recognize me and embrace me. The other says, leave me alone. But they're both saying something. And when we're silence, not silent, not silenced, but silence itself, when we are that, after we've done away with all of these aspects of us through understanding them, only then can we know what it means to be an individual. Only then can we choose to have relationship. Because until you know what that means, it's a false choice. We can't stay diseased forever hypothesizing about what it's like to be healthy. Nor can we throw up our arms and go, well, I guess this unhealthiness is just human nature. How would you know? It's the nature of psychological time. It's the nature of thought. So what happens when we stop worshiping thought? What happens when we stop worshiping ourselves? Stop pretending that depression, even, is anything more than praying at our own altar. 
decorated with our memories and our feelings and our hurt and our pain and how we feel about ourselves, which informs how we feel about others. Anger in the timeline is the same as depression in the timeline. They're both you. The timeline is you. We want love, true love. We have to stop time. Through being honest enough to understand ourselves without judgment. Just seeing how we honestly function. All of us. When those weeds are plucked, let's see what grows.